Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Here's a snippet of what's to come. It's in that sort of historical context, I think, that the bankers and the lawyers and the Sharia scholars were faced with a problem, which is, yeah. well, if we want to do this, we've got the equity, but for a successful venture, we need debt to be there as well. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on Ibrahim at IslamicFinanceGuru.com. Enjoy the episode. At IFG, we really value someone trying to run a halal business without dealing in riba. And we love it when Muslims bring something innovative to the table. And that's why we support Shropshire Hills-based Euro Quality Lamb, the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir in Europe. And I've actually been there and they're doing something genuinely impressive. And it has infused within it the Muslim ethos. What's special about Euro quality is that out of the 15,000 lambs they process every week, they only select a handful of the best breeds of grass-fed lamb for their home delivery service. The meat is cut how you want it. English cuts, desi cuts, barbecue style. You just don't find this stuff at your local butchers. So order online at euroqualitylambs.co.uk forward slash shop. And reference Islamic Finance Guru to get yourself a free masala marinade worth £4.50 and a YouTube recipe hijri calendar worth £5. Terms and conditions apply. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Millionaire Muslim IFG's podcast. And today I've got with me a very special person. He may not necessarily realize how important his contribution was to my career. We're very thankful. This is Mohammed Baraja, who's a partner at Notion Rose, which is one of the elite law firms in the world. He's based in Dubai. And out of the blue, when I was in uni, I reached out to you and I asked if I could have internship or a kind of work experience. And out of all the people that emailed to you, you were the one who said yes. Right. That was really useful for me because that was, I think, the only law experience I had at the time. Right. Very thankful to you for that. And after so many years, I'm actually a lawyer now as well. So it's great to be back in touch. And I thought it'd be fantastic for our audience to hear about your experiences because it's quite rare that you have someone who's so accomplished in a particular field and is also from a Muslim background and has his ethics close to heart. Maybe if we start from the start of your journey, I know you grew up in Tunbridge Wells. That's right. Back in the 1980s, 90s? Well, if I dodge, I know my age, so I have to keep that quiet. <laughs> a long time ago, yeah. should we say. So how did you find out? How was it like back then? So Tunbridge Wells is a really beautiful town in the southeast of England in Kent. When I was growing up, we didn't have a masjid. Um, right. We were a very small community. I still remember going every Saturday to our maktab in a hall that we'd hired and our elders had booked all of that to try and you know, help the generations that were coming through. Now, of course, it's a, you know, there's a, a vibe there. I mean, we've got a, a masjid, but I do remember going through school and being the only Muslim. Oh, so, yeah. you know, it was that kind of environment. But I personally find those environments actually to be quite, quite refreshing in some yeah. ways, because you can actually, you are under the spotlight, but it gives you the opportunity to talk to people who perhaps look at you and think, well, I'd like to get to know this person yeah. and you get the opportunity to tell them about yourself. And do you think this kind of echoes my experience as well? Do you think that 
it's actually helpful for ethnic minority kids to go to school in schools where there's a real mix of kids. Because I know, like, my brother, he grew up in Leicester. Mm. So his school was very, very concentrated, ethnic minority school. Whereas I grew up in Middlesbrough, and it was very varied. Right. And did you find that exposure had an impact on your career, or it made you better suited to certain things later on in life? Or I've never really considered it from that point of view, uh, to be honest. I mean, I grew up in an environment where there were very few Muslims. Yeah. Uh, Tunbridge Wells is very well known. It's a very conservative town. I think we're a melting pot or a salad bowl, however you want to look at this. And I think growing up in an environment where you mix with a wide group of people has to be very good for you and your upbeing because you get to see diverse backgrounds and you can make sure that that forms part of your own character yeah, as you go yeah, into yeah. life and when we mix in london when sitting in london at the moment i'm working to buy you meet everyone so you have yeah. to understand and appreciate uh, each person's diversity and i think if you're in an environment in your formative years where you've had that exposure then i think that must be a good thing now in tunbridge wells we just didn't have that environment yeah. it was literally me and probably one or two other families yeah. going through yeah. my school it's now very different. I personally thrived in that environment, but yeah. you know, it's not for everyone. To each their own, I suppose. Absolutely. And then from Tunbridge Wells, you trained at a firm in Tunbridge Wells or in London? or How did that work? Yeah, well, that's an interest. That's actually my inroad into Islamic finance in some ways, because I trained with a provincial firm in Tunbridge Wells for about 10 months, I think it was. Oh. And it was during that time when I started developing an interest in Islamic finance and I had a sort of almost a pet hobby, which was to contact high street banks in the UK okay. and try to get them educated on Islamic finance because I probably had a very selfish motive, which was I want to take a mortgage at some point in the yeah. future. How do I persuade these banks to enter this sector? But when I was working in Tunbridge Wells, I actually was practicing prison law and criminal law. Right. Okay. Um, that was the background to the firm that I had joined. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was effectively going into prisons and representing murderers and those that were doing oh, wow. other yeah. crimes, which we should not talk about. It was interesting, but also quite depressing in some yeah, ways. Yeah. But it, in that context, you know, I was contacting banks who were showing some interest in Islamic finance and you'd get the polite letters back. But it was very much a one person, a one man sort of endeavour, which of course is not going to get anywhere yeah, in the context yeah, yeah. of contacting high street banks. But I came across an article in the Law Society Gazette, actually, which was written talking about Norton Rose's Islamic finance practice. And what I found myself doing was actually just writing into the firm and telling them what I had been doing in my personal capacity, which, as I said, was just a hobby. Yeah. And before I knew it, the chairman had called me in together with my former partner. And we were talking about, you know, the industry and Islamic finance and things that I had done. And they had offered to transfer my training contract into the firm. Wow. Yeah. And that's kind of how I joined Norton Rose. I did sort of 10 months enjoying the law in Tunbridge Wells yeah. and then realising suddenly that there was an Islamic finance industry that big law firms like Norton Rose were embarking on. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really fascinating. That's quite entrepreneurial, isn't it? I think that's, it's quite rare to hear that, candidly speaking, about a lawyer. I think that's be interesting to hear your thoughts on that, about how at the junior end of the spectrum in our industry, sometimes different skills are um, mm. favoured, whereas when you get more senior, 
different set of skills yes. are favoured in it. There's almost that kind of dichotomy between <laughs> are, the, are the people who are going to get to that stage yeah. going to be the right people? Yeah, It's an interesting observation and an interesting point. I mean, as is always the case, there's never a right or wrong answer. Yeah. But I have to say, I interview a lot of people at all spectrums, whether associates or for partnership positions. And I think it's fair to say that if you spot a candidate that's had a slightly more entrepreneurial slant or experience, that tends to come through. So I do definitely encourage people to try and build other skills in addition to their professional life if they can, because Mm. there are transferable skills which will help you as a solicitor. Makes sense. So you you trained at Norton Rose, finished off your training, and then you launched into your work as an associate. You qualified into banking, and then you spent four or five years there. And I want to fast forward to uh, when you left and you went to Salam. Yes. Uh, how did that whole thing come about? And yes. you know, talk to us about that. Yes, you're right. So I worked in London for about four or five years with the firm and they asked me to transfer to the Bahrain office. And one of the things with international law firms is the network. Yeah. So I found myself in Bahrain doing Islamic finance. And then we worked on the IPO for Al Salam Bank, oh, yeah. which was a bank being set up by sponsors out of Dubai, really. But they set up in Bahrain and I ended up being poached by the client that we were acting for. And what was interesting about that opportunity, and it's, it's, you know, you look back at life and there are turning points in your life and certain things you look at and you, you just have to take advantage of them. And I was kind of probably a year away from my partnership track at the time. And really? no one could really understand why I was doing it at the firm, including yeah. the chairman who spoke to me in no uncertain terms and said I was probably a bit crazy <coughs> to be doing this. But the fact of the matter was, at that point in time, I still do believe this, that when you go through and you qualify as a solicitor, you're very good at dealing with your client's needs and you're very good at problem solving and the practical side of things. Yeah. But you've never sat on the other side of the table and you've never really understood it from the client's perspective. So at that point in my career, I felt, well, look, if I'm committing to this industry, I should get some experience in on actually the client side of the business. Yeah. So the opportunity to join Al Salam Bank really was for me to be in a startup team and join the management of the bank, which was unheard of at my age at the time. How big was the bank at the time? I, I was employee number three or four. Wow. It really was. It had just got its license. We were building the bank. So prior to that, I'd helped build other banks, but as a consultant. So the Islamic Bank Bank of Britain project, uh, Rayan Bank, who probably know now, EIIB, and there were others, Islamic Windows. And I really felt, no, let me go and work inside the organization and build that skill set. The other thing that was quite appealing to me, apart from all of the points that I've mentioned, was the fact that the bank would be doing private equity and you know, this maybe is a topic that we talk about further in the interview, but yeah, Islamic finance shouldn't just be about debt. It should mm. be about equity-based yeah, financing. Yeah, in yeah, fact, yeah. it should be more in that direction. And prior to joining Al Salam, I had just been a debt finance lawyer, and I really felt the need to learn how to do equity. Yeah. If you're doing Islamic finance, you need to know both. Yeah, agreed. And so, I mean, there's, there's a few things I want to pick up on. One was how young this company was. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you had to do more than just the law when you went into this bank and developing yeah. the, the entire business, essentially? So I started by just doing the law. Right. I thought I was going in as general counsel. Right. But as is the case, and it may be more so in the Middle East with some of the startups that were you know, around that time, yeah. you get spotted very quickly if you've got a skill set that's transferable. Yeah. So having started and built the legal team, 
I, you know, I was expecting to look at opportunities on the investment committee, credit committee, and build that skill set, plus do a bit of travel with commercial teams. Yeah, yeah. But as it turned out, the very first transaction for the bank was originated by me okay. uh, because of my prior experience. I actually brought an aviation financing deal into the bank, and that kind of marked me out a little bit by the CEO. And he said, "Oh, actually." let's try to get this person to do a bit more commercial yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. I ended up actually doing quite a strong blend of legal and then supporting the commercial team. But towards the end of my time, I actually was fully commercial. So I left wow. the legal department and I ended up being reverse seconded back to the UK to set up their European private equity arm as the CEO. And that was completely commercial. And is the, are they still going? Arsenal yeah. Bank are probably one of the largest banks in Bahrain at the moment. They've actually consolidated and acquired many other smaller banks. Right. So it's going very strong. And private equity stuff in, in London, is that ongoing? I think they run all their private equity out of Bahrain these days. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's the second thing I wanted to mm. talk to you about, this whole private equity thing. Yes. Obviously, conventional private equity has some tensions with Islamic law. Mm. The biggest one being that there's a lot of conventional debt yes. in the structure. And then the other one is preferred return aspect of it. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you think is best to kind of, from an Islamic perspective, how best should we get around that? Yeah. So look, from a Sharia perspective, preference shares are not allowed. Yeah. So the issue of preferred return is a tricky area yeah. because you have to only have one class of investors, which yeah. typically are ordinary shares, yeah, yeah. unless you're looking at introducing a class of shares that have certain administrative rights, which are not really preference for shares. But you can, from a Sharia perspective, you can give a, another, you can create another class that have got preference on winding up, for example. Yeah. So that doesn't really help you much in a private equity scenario because you're really trying to mimic preference share. And I think, you know, one of the things that is quite helpful when it comes to equity is the flexibility when you use Musharaka as a tool. Mm. And everyone needs to get their head around it in terms of the partners that are forming you know, the, the deal. But unlike Mudaraba, Musharaka, you've got a lot more flexibility in terms of how you allocate profit between the parties. Yeah. So because of that, you can get to a position where for one of the shareholders, you can actually put them in a preferred position yeah. in terms yeah. of the waterfall and the allocation of profit. Yeah. So if you've got the right mix of shareholders and that can work, then that's a very neat and easy way to deal with things in the shareholders agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you can mimic a preference share quite easily through the economics. There are more debt-based ways in which you can do that, which you know may or may not work depending on the transaction. You can use another type of instrument to try and get or extract a preference share type return but then that's about recharacterizing the deal away from being a shareholder yeah. sort of musharaka type arrangement then introducing the sort of a tier of debt into the structure but there are one or two ways in which yeah. you can come up with a way to satisfy that interesting and then if the other thing is obviously the debt that goes into the both that I suppose at the fund level but yeah. also down below certainly the portfolio company levels yes and i suppose i'm not well-versed in the practicalities of debt financing, certainly not as much as you are. But I presume that that's just you would do your standard Sharia financing for those aspects. Or is there any kind of particular wrinkles in that as well? It depends on what you're doing, first of all. So let's say your joint venture is, um, most quite a lot of them are in the London market concerned with something like a real estate investment, right. which if we take that as our example. Now, depending on what you're doing, if you're buying an investment grade property and you've got two partners coming together to do that, it's relatively straightforward and easy to get 
debt in the London market, which is structured to be Sharia compliant. So yeah. at your property holding level, you can actually introduce Sharia compliant debt. So that's the most straightforward way to do it. And that's the, the way that the scholars would prefer you to do it, is yeah. to take a product from an Islamic bank or a window from a conventional bank and use that. Mm. Now, obviously, life is not that simple. And we sometimes do find ourselves in a situation where a client is coming to you and actually saying, no, I need a structure where a conventional bank is providing me with a conventional loan. Mm. How do we do that? And frankly, that's probably one of the most challenging things to do when you're practicing Islamic finance, because you have this tension in your mind because you're very comfortable arranging a transaction where there's complete Sharia compliant debt. There are certain parameters that the scholars have given where conventional debt can be introduced. And for those of us that just do Islamic finance, having a component of your transaction where there's conventional debt can be uncomfortable depending on how close you are to it. No, I understand that. And so where would that conventional debt come in, in like the mix? Would it be, is it, would you be at a different level to where you're operating now? Is that is that where the tension is? I think I need to draw structures yeah. out. <laughs> um, it really depends on the transaction. So right. let's say you're doing a transaction where you've got investors coming in to buy property in the UK, but for whatever reason, they haven't been able to get Islamic financing. Yeah. Um, and, and that does still happen because there are circumstances where the deal just doesn't fit the credit criteria of the bank. Right. Now, if that forces people to look at conventional finance and they're comfortable with that and they have a Sharia board that has given them the green light, then they will proceed yeah. to take conventional debt. Mm-hmm. But the way that they will do that is to be is to restructure the transaction so that their participation is slightly different. Siloed. Is siloed. Yeah. And so if you imagine a structure chart with the left and right hand side, the left side is where the property owning vehicle will borrow conventionally. Yeah. But then the the client or the investor will be looking at ways in which they can introduce their equity into that vehicle. But because they cannot own shares in a company that has conventional debt, they cannot become a shareholder, because that's one of the Sharia requirements, they will recharacterize their equity in another format. And that will be typically to introduce it through a Murabah instrument. But then that in itself creates other things that we need to think about because whilst our job will be to look at that Murabaha instrument and ask ourselves how the funding comes across, that's not the end because of course they want an equity-like return even though they might not be a shareholder. So there's often other elements to the structure that we need to look at so that they do actually get the benefit of the upside. Interesting. It sounds like whenever Islamic finance would get involved in a deal, it would just add so many different layers of complication to what would otherwise potentially be quite a simple deal? Only when things are perhaps less straightforward. Right. I think it can be more complicated, but that's because you're trying to use a conventional loan. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that creates complexity. And if your Sharia board has allowed you to do that within certain parameters, then mm. you've got to create a, a disconnect with yeah. that side of the deal. And, you know, that, that does create layers. Well, that kind of brings me nicely on to everyone's favorite question, <laughs> which is, is Islamic finance really Islamic? Yeah, I, I won't say any more. I'll just let you answer it the way you want to. Yeah. Okay. Open-ended question. Yeah. Look, I, I would say that you can't give a generic answer to a question like that. Yeah. I mean, I've spent my career looking up to the Sharia scholars who ultimately are the ones that guide us on Islamic finance. And, you know, if you have a bank that is properly represented by a Sharia board of reputable scholars and they've sanctioned certain products that can be used, whether they are Ijara, Murabaha, 
istisnai jara, whatever they may be, then that for me is sufficient. I don't go behind that. There is obviously a debate in the industry as to whether we've gone too far down the Tawaruk route yeah. or the quantity Marabaha yeah, yeah. route. And I have to say, I have a lot of sympathy with that argument mm. because I practice very much in the center of that product mm. type. And I know that it's the default product for lots of people. They mm. go straight to it when actually what we should be doing is trying to find a more pure way to structure mm. the deal and then use the commodity Marabaha structure if all else fails. Mm. And that's certainly my approach when I try to structure a deal. It's always can we do something that is purer from an Islamic finance point of view? But if there's a legal or regulatory issue, then we've got the commodity Marabaha structure yeah. if it works. Unfortunately, there are clients and banks and borrowers, use conventional speak, who just go to it as default. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that because there are Sharia boards who have authorized those right. products. Yeah. But if there was one thing that would like to change in the industry is the yeah. moving away from the automatic, let's go to commodity Marabaha, to let's see how we can do something a bit more purer before we go there. Makes sense. And where do you think you would like the industry as a whole to go in the next five, 10 years? I think if I was to look back over the last 15 to 20 years in the industry, and when I say that, I realize how long I've been doing this job. What disappoints me is how we haven't balanced the Islamic finance industry to a 50-50 debt equity structure or model or economy. And what I would like to see, and it very much is a wish list item, is more effort being put on equity modes of finance, which is what I think yeah, the Islamic yeah, yeah. economy should be based around fundamentally. And look, you can understand yeah. why everyone went to debt and you can understand why fixed income uh, in particular was an easy thing to do and, and is needed by the market. But I think what we have done as an industry mm. is we've ignored the other side. And if we look at how Islam talks about an Islamic economy and the benefits in having equity-based modes of financing and the benefits to wider society and having yeah. a share in what's happening and the whole risk and reward discussions around the Daraba and Musharaka, I think that we're not doing enough. Mm. And I don't think there are many organizations who are pushing that agenda. So I would like to see more institutions who have got that mindset, who yeah. identify business opportunities to create viable models where investors are protected because yeah. that's the risk as well you know you have whenever someone has tried to do this it's been bankers who are familiar with debt rather than bankers who are familiar with equity risk and that's not a good mix mm. so we need to have the right skill set also so that we protect investors but that is a gap in the market mm. that i would like to see more effort towards and why I mean, you said that it was it's easier or it was understandable why people went for debt mm. can you just elaborate a bit more on that um, yeah i think equity you know if you look at how your average commercial transaction is put together you have people who are providing equity into the deal yeah but they are always looking to leverage their returns right. so when you yeah. when i think when the petrodollars first started flowing and middle eastern investors in particular not excluding those in the far east as well but particularly in the middle east suddenly had money yeah. they started asking themselves how do we make our transactions with all of this inflow of money compatible with sharia so you know they would form businesses and they would enter into jvs and that kind of thing and the natural question would be 
in that scenario, well, we need to borrow because cost of funding is lower for debt than equity, as we yeah. all know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in that sort of historical context, I think, that the bankers and the lawyers and the Sharia scholars were faced with a problem, which is, yeah. well, if we want to do this, we've got the equity, but for a successful venture, we need debt to be there as well. Yeah. And so we went down this path of trying to mimic conventional mm. product and create yeah. equivalents to term loans and revolving credit facilities and acquisition financing, which are all needed. Right. Yeah. But we haven't pulled back from that and asked yeah. ourselves, what else do we need to do? Maybe then you could argue it was a symptom of the underlying assets that were being invested in. Because, you know, if they were investing in, which I know, for example, the Saudis now are, and a lot of the Gulf is now investing in venture capital funds and mm. growth equity funds, where the economics of it doesn't really need debt. Yeah. In fact, you'd be turbocharging an already over turbocharged <laughs> underlying asset. And so, yeah, so maybe that's a way to look at it, where historically the Middle East, given the infrastructure needs that they had and the mm. real estate and all of that sort of thing, they inclined towards debt because of that. And now that the economies are maturing, mm. I mean, I think SoftBank's biggest LP is the Saudi yes. royal family, right? Or the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Mm. I don't know what you think about that whole thing. Well, aspect. it comes back to my earlier point, which is you can see how it's happened. But quite often in life, we just don't pause and reflect. And I think that's what it is. Yeah. There's been a lot of commentators who have said, look, we need to try and reset the balance, really. Yeah. But we often don't get the chance to actually reflect. And I think if we did that, then we would realise, well, actually, why would an individual, for example, just take it down to a very retail level? And that's really my observation yeah. when I say this. Why would an individual that's been working all their life be comfortable putting their hard-earned money into a savings account and earning mm. less than 1%? Mm. That doesn't seem a very fair deal. And the reason that that's all they can do is there's a lack of product because all the products are based on the debt side. Yeah. You're right, if you are a sovereign wealth fund, yes, you can put your money into a private equity or venture capital deal or you can come up with something bespoke. But if you're an average person, whatever your background, there's a limit. Yeah. Now, within the Islamic universe, and we look at social inclusion in financial terms, there is very little, if nothing, in the UK space for an investor to take equity risk other than buying shares. And certainly if there was something on the equity side, I would be asking very carefully, very, looking very carefully as to whether the risk of the venture is properly understood and yeah. reflected in whatever the opportunity is, because as I mentioned before, we have to be very careful with equity risk and people's money. Right. No, agreed. Agreed. This is a conversation that I'm personally very interested in, but I'm cognizant that, you know, my viewers or, you know, our listeners might not be. Right. And I wanted to come on to something that I think will be beneficial to a lot of people. And that's talking about what kind of role models did you have growing mm -hmm. up and who did you look to as inspiration and maybe how that's changed over the years and who you look to for inspiration and as a role model now. You're asking some very difficult questions. <laughs> look, I, I'm a very boring individual because I started out in Islamic finance from a very early age, alhamdulillah. But my role models probably then and now are the same. I mean, I uh, have spent a lot of time with Sharia scholars and I take the view that they are our guides. And when you're with them, you're like a sponge. You're absorbing yeah. what they are there to teach you. And so my role models probably throughout my career have been the same. And they've been probably 
two scholars. I don't know if I can say their names. Yeah, well, uh, Mufti Taki Usmani is yeah. one of them, and another is Sheikh Nidan Yaqubi. Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time with both of them to work on transactions and to learn. And it's through both of them that I did learn. And what kind of advice would you give to budding lawyers who are applying into this quite competitive field where numbers are potentially going to be cut because of automation and jobs being outsourced to Glasgow and Birmingham <laughs> and what have you? Yeah. How do you go about it? What's the best way to, what's your top tips? I think you need to have a passion, first of all. Look, there are changes in the legal profession. There are changes in every profession and we have to embrace them because change isn't a bad thing. Mm. You know, it requires us to think differently and to adapt ourselves, which makes us resilient. Mm. So I think let's not be too worried about it. But in the legal profession and those that want to become Islamic finance lawyers in particular, which I think is your question, have that passion don't be a passenger but be a driver in your career and you need to embrace the industry understand what's going on in the industry be part of conferences and really latching on to people who are in the industry already and showing your enthusiasm Mm. and i think as long as you have that passion and you've demonstrated that actually you are not just someone that's got a passing interest but you really understand this sector and you want to be part of it i think you will stand out still when it comes to firms looking to recruit because this is a specialist area and those firms that have got an affinity to the middle east and the far east where islamic finance is frankly speaking the engine room for most of the work in islamic finance you will stand out from the crowd and you will still find a place but you have to really be at the top of your game and you have to be uh, someone with passion that makes sense. And what would you say to a Muslim who wants to apply to law? Mm. Obviously, there's areas of law that potentially are at odds with Islam yes. and being a Muslim. How would you kind of navigate that? I mean, I have my own thoughts as a lawyer. Mm. I've had to do that. And I think everyone has their own unique journey. Sure. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts, how you sure. went about it and your advice. So look, if you're going through the English legal system, you have to train. And that means that you do have to learn different types of law. And, you know, you have to do that to qualify. So there's nothing that can be said about that. But like with anyone that goes through the legal profession, you will be drawn towards certain things that appeal to you. So I think you focus on what you're good at. You obviously need to take advice from learned people along the way. I would always suggest that. And in particular, those that are in the industry as well to actually understand how that career and that particular practice would look in three years or five years or 10 years from now, particularly with things like AI in mind and and other things that you've mentioned and automation, which is coming down the road. But ultimately, you have to be comfortable in your own skin and do what gives you satisfaction, I suppose. No, it makes sense. And this is a question we like to ask. What book would you recommend? What have you been reading? (laughs) That's a slightly left field question. I'm looking at the others. (laughs) Can I give you two books? Yeah, you can. I'm very much someone that feels that you need escapism in addition to the serious side of life. So I will say in terms of escapism, you need entertainment is is basically what I'm saying. And if you're that minded and you you look at books for that kind of thing, then I do have a very good Jeffrey Archer collection. Ah, Okay. So I find his short stories quite good to escape into and Clifton Chronicles in particular. I don't know if that's a good thing. If I I said something, that's going (laughs) to mark me out for the rest of my life. So you really need to find something that is your way to escape. Because I think it is important to try and find something. 
So that's the first answer I'd give you. The second answer I would give you, of course, is going to be something linked to my profession, which is Islamic finance. The more serious answer that the audience may have expected, perhaps. Um, But I'm actually studying part-time at the moment on an island program. Ah, Who with? We have a a program in Dubai. Ah, okay, nice. And I'm in year three, so we're now studying books in Arabic. And one of my texts is Al-Quduri, which is a very famous Hanafi fiqh book. And as a practitioner in Islamic finance, someone that spent lots of years before actually reading a fiqhi book in Arabic, yeah. I'm now looking at principles of Ijara and Murabaha and all the other chapters that we have to learn. And I would say, if you are looking to do Islamic finance, pick up a, a copy in English. It's on Kindle. Yeah. And it's really interesting because... Whilst you build on this book in later years and you look at Hidayah and some of the yeah. other kitabs of the other books, the grounding that you get from reading a very basic book yeah. in understanding how jurisprudential rules were developed over a thousand years ago by someone that sell pottery yeah. uh, is really fascinating. So if anyone's got an inclination towards Islamic finance and understanding, well, why do we do things in this way in Murabaha? Why do we do things in Ijara this way? This is really how it all started. Interesting. And in later years, you can layer on that modern, you know, how those fiqhi rulings developed as you progress in later years. But as a grounding, I think it's a fantastic book. No, I didn't realize that there was good island courses out there in Dubai as well. Yeah. Uh, everything seems to be out there in Dubai now. And it's taught in English. Ah, fantastic. So you don't have to learn Urdu. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I suppose the final question I wanted to ask you was, where do you see yourself or your career, your life heading in the next five to 10 years? I know this is... <laughs> that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. I don't like to think that far ahead, yeah. uh, to be honest with you. We just have to do the best that we can here and now. Yeah. And, you know, leave it in Allah's hands. I mean, that's the, the bottom line. I mean, just do what, whatever you do in life, do it in your best possible capacity and be perfect in what you do. And that's what you should strive for. And inshallah, that's all that you can really say. And inshallah, that will be accepted and we shall uh, rewarded. Well, Jazakallah Khair, Muhammad, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think I personally have, I think, benefited from that and really found that useful. And if people want to reach out to you, I don't know if there's, are you on LinkedIn, yes, Twitter or something? I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on both. Okay, cool. So yeah, tweet away and you know, <laughs> reach out to Muhammad on LinkedIn if you've got any questions. It's been an absolute pleasure. Jazakallah Thank you for having me. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.